0: When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Sun David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord
1: father may we be sober in our self-judgment slow to speak quick to listen slow to become angry And Lord, may we be quick to be drawn to you for your love and for your forgiveness. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, what was a sermon series that seemed to be trending upward, seemed to be going fine, following the establishment of the monarchy of Israel? David was ascending, he was established, his, his citadel, fortress city of Jerusalem is established and God promises that David's house will be established forever, that God's loving kindness would be put on David's son and his descendants. And then last week we had a startling reminder of the frailty of our own humanity. In fact, in our, our little tagline, you're made to be fully human, there's this recognition that as long as we're clothed in this flesh, as St. Paul says, we're going to be prone to sin. There are going to be things that cause us to wander wander and draw us away from God's goodness, from that posture of adoratio, of face-to-face with God, of breathing in his divine life. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? Breathing out his praise. As long as we're clothed in flesh, We're going to have that struggle. And we see David, our hero, our priest king, our prophet priest king, this one who kind of embodied who Jesus would become only in the perfect way, David now has lost control. The one who would lead a procession of worship now has kind of forsaken the worship of God. He's forsaken orthodoxy or right worship, and he's moved into whatever, We've seen that when enough, the things that God has given David, when enough wasn't enough, the successes that he had, instead of leading to praise, to honor, to humility, to thanksgiving, became hubris in David. Well, there's a woman bathing on the roof. David's actions are taken. Even though he knows that they're wrong, he takes these actions. Tonight, we see what happens after David is found out. We don't know what was happening in his heart. We don't know what his inner dialogue was like. But we do know what happens when Nathan, the prophet, confronts him. And I would suggest to you tonight that the rhythm that we see David operate in, the pattern that we see him go in, move in, as as God's word is revealed to him and, and David responds is a pattern and a rhythm that all of us who follow Jesus, who know and love him, however imperfectly, it's a rhythm and a pattern that we're to learn from. More so, it's a rhythm and a pattern that we're to live in. Because if you're baptized, you're baptized into this rhythm of repentance, turning away from sin, and turning to Christ. We know it just doesn't happen one time, That you don't just turn from your sin one time. It happens daily. Maybe many times a day. Maybe for some of us, many, many times a day. (laughs) Sorry, Jim. Just trying to pick on you. (laughs) Didn't work. Didn't smile. But I want you to hear me before I get any further. I'm not talking about this rhythm in order so that you will obsess over your every thought, motive, and move. Just let me say this at the outset. I don't want you to scrupulize every thought, motive, and move because if you do, you'll find yourself in a graceless rhythm. One where you are being taught to manage your sin, where you're trying to engage in behavior modification And you find yourself, instead of in a a dance of the unforced rhythms of grace with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you find yourself in a performance, totally solo, before a God of your own making, trying to earn approval, trying to win from this God love, trying to win from this God what God gives us in Christ Jesus. So that's the caveat at the outset. Now, we've been looking at the life of Israel so that we can understand as we become a people, as we become St. Bartholomew's, what can we learn from the nation of Israel? Israel went through a lot, a lot of identity issues. But we saw in this particular chapter of their life in the establishment of the monarchy, we've learned a lot from them we as a church can learn some rhythms and patterns as well as we're confronted with our own sin. Now, you may say, Jay, I haven't killed anybody. I didn't take someone's wife off the roof of their house and send that guy to the front lines. But let's remember what Jesus said in that Sermon on the Mount. Those two, those two ones that are so hard If you look at someone or, let's say, something lustfully, whether it's sexually or otherwise, then you've committed adultery in your heart or you've committed theft in your heart. And the same, if you've said to someone else something in hatred, you fool in hatred, then you are committing murder in your heart. Now, the first one may be easy for us, but the second one, we all live in the same city. We drive the same roads. We have the same aggravation in other people. It's difficult. It's frustrating. So remember, God is teaching us tonight in David's example in this grace-filled process and rhythm. Now, let's look at what happens. Let's notice. Now, first, before any revelation happens, that's the first step in this rhythm or this pattern. Before any revelation happens, Notice verses 28, or excuse me, 27 of chapter 11 and and verse 1 of chapter 12. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. He sends Uriah to the front line. The thing that David did to have Uriah killed by the sword of the Ammonites displeased the Lord. And God did not sit aloofly, but he took action. Verse 1 of chapter 12. This is, there's a beautiful symmetry here. And the Lord sent Nathan. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. So before there's any revelation, before David maybe or maybe not has a chance to understand, you know what? I, what I've done is really bad. Before that happens... God sends Nathan, the prophet. What does the prophet do? The prophet's going to speak the word of God on God's behalf. God sends his word to us perfectly in Christ Jesus. We have his holy scriptures. And when Nathan comes to David, we have a moment of revelation. And notice the kindness with which Nathan speaks to David. He tells a story. Or maybe it's, maybe it's cunning and brilliant because the way that Nathan tells the story, David gets drawn into it. And David's ready to take his sword and go hack up the guy that took the lamb and et cetera, et cetera. So even before David, as he's hearing this revelation, even before he understands his culpability, his sin in the way that 2 Samuel lays it out, even before that, He's caught up in this moment. He's so blinded by what he has done. This is a moment of revelation. Then, as if it wasn't spelled out clearly enough, as David issues his warning to the man who took the poor man's lamb, Nathan says, David, you are the man. Think about that a moment. This one who was the king par excellence of Israel, this one who brought the ark back, David, you are the man. This one to whom God promised his steadfast, faithful covenant love to be upon him and his house through all generations, you are the man. And in the midst of this revelation, pointed revelation, we can reflect on our own lives. How often has God surgically, with laser-like focus, said, You have done this. Oh, my hands are clean. No, you have participated in this. You are the man. So I want us to see that God's revelation here is not belligerent. God's revelation here is not angry. God's revelation here is nothing of the sort. It's gracious. It's good. It's kind. It begins this this process, this rhythm. Now, God's going to say some stern things through Nathan the prophet to David. But we're going to look to the end of this story, but to the end of the story to see that this is a gracious process. It's just one to be engaged in, in hope. So then there's the realization. God reveals his word to David through Nathan the prophet. Nathan has to be very specific, very obvious. You are the man. David has a moment of realization. Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the moment when we realize that something wrong has been done. And we're reminded that the word repentance fundamentally means to change your mind. The Greek word metanoia is the word repentance. And so when John the Baptist came in his ascetic way, preaching repentance out in the wilderness, when he said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Even now the threshing floor is here, the winning fork is here, the fire has come. He was trying to draw Israel to a change of mind, to a change of heart. Just wait, because in Advent, we'll get to live that. We'll get to hear that and imbibe that and breathe that in. But for now, we remember that repentance is changing of mind. David realizes, I have sinned against the Lord. And we know that in that moment of realization, Psalm 51 is the, is the fruit of that. He knows that he needs to turn away from the things that he's done. He can't make complete reparations. He can't give to the, man, the poor man four lambs for the one that he took. Because Uriah is dead. At this moment, perfect justice cannot be Performed. And that can be disheartening. But David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And we look at Psalm 51 and notice in David's repentance, what are the first words that he said? Have mercy on me, O God, page three of your bulletin, according to your loving kindness, in your great compassion, blot out. My offenses. Oh God. I totally screwed up. You were the one who said that your faithful, steadfast, unfailing covenant love would be upon me and my house throughout all generations. It was promised to me, and I squandered it. Enough was not enough for me, O oh God. I took What was not mine? I killed an innocent man. I have absolutely nothing to appeal to, O God. I'm as good as dead. All I have to appeal to is your unfailing love. That's all David had. We see in the next chapter, he and Bathsheba, who is not named in chapter 11 or 12 of 2 Samuel, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah, she's called. But the first child that they conceive dies. It lives seven days and we see David fasting and praying, putting on sackcloth and ashes. It reminds us, it's, it's like the old David. The David who put together this procession of worship and prays to bring the ark back this David who loved his God so dearly. And he says, when his, when his servants asked him, why are you fasting and praying? Why did you fast and pray? And now that the child is dead, you eat and your clothes again. And he says this, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Even in, dis- in David's despicable acts, Even in the abominable things that he did, he remembered God's unfailing love. It's hard for us to hear this. It's hard for us to reconcile this. But it's the reality. There was revelation, there was realization, there was repentance. Let's go on in Psalm 51. Verse four, or page four of your bulletin. He asks God to blot out his offenses. Verse two, Wash me through and through from my wickedness. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is not the song written by a guy who is really upset by the way that he didn't say his morning prayer time. This is a guy who knows he deserves Death. He knows he deserves the worst punishment. And he begs God, Wash me. I know my transgressions are before me. My sin is ever before me. You are justified, verse 5, when you speak and upright in your judgment. For behold, you look for truth deep within me. Will make me understand wisdom secretly. And then we get down the bottom of this section of the psalm, verse 10, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me the joy of your saving help again and sustain me with your bountiful spirit. And as we read that, we cannot help but think Of the mercy that's been shown all of us. For all the wrongs that we've done and all the wrongs that have been done to us can actually be blotted out. That God will not take His Holy Spirit from us, that He will return and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Do you see the significance of this? David didn't know if this was possible. David followed a king who was haunted by evil spirits, and David had to play the harp to get the spirits to go away. And next thing you know, uh, Saul has the favor of God removed from him. David is begging for his life, and he's appealing to that same love that God promised would be on him and his house forever. David didn't know what God would answer. But because David was a man, after God's own heart, he could say, who knows? Maybe God will be gracious to me. Maybe he will forgive me. So in that moment of repentance, we have a foreshadowing of restoration. It's not in your bulletin. I don't know why the lectionary does this. But the second half of verse 13 in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, Samuel says this, or excuse me, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. After Samuel prophesied all the terrible things that were going to happen to David and his house, rightly deserved because of what David did, David acknowledges his sin. There's this moment of repentance, and we see restoration. Now, it's restoration in part, but it foreshadows restoration perfectly, beautifully. There was another guy who was an awful sinner. He was a guy who killed people. He was someone, not Nathan the prophet, but another prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ, The risen Christ, ascended Christ, knocked off his donkey. And this man, Saul, who was seething in his heart, who was zealous to kill Christians, Saul has a radical conversion. Saul lives with the brothers, the brethren of the way, these Christians. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, the church is praying and fasting. I believe they're at Antioch. And Paul, Barnabas and Saul are sent off on mission. They go to Cyprus and they end up at Antioch of Pisidia. And now his name isn't Saul anymore because they don't because he is the guy that uh, oversaw the killing of Christians, Stephen Namely, the first martyr, martyr of the church. Now, one who deserved death, <coughs> one who said of himself, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, when, when Paul says, I'm one who was untimely born, That translation could be rendered as one who was aborted and yet lived. Paul, who could say, you have given me your unfailing love, O God, says this about forgiveness, says this about restoration. For David, Paul's preaching, remember, he says, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, he died. And was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, even David, when he died, decayed. His body saw corruption. He was human. Paul's speaking of Jesus' resurrection here. But he, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, not David, but the son of David, Jesus, the one of the tribe of Judah, the one born in Bethlehem, the one who was the prophet, priest, and king, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." somehow somewhere some way david understands or knows that there is a deeper forgiveness that was preached in that law of moses foreshadowing to the new covenant that jeremiah would write of and that ezekiel would write of in his lowest moment In his cry for mercy, he foreshadows this forgiveness that didn't come through David who saw corruption. Paul, who was also a notorious sinner, who also deserved death, who also deserved punishment and separation from God, Paul could preach and proclaim that in him, Jesus, the one who did not see corruption, the one whom God raised from the dead, in him there is forgiveness. So this rhythm that we're invited into, this pattern that we're invited into, it's sobering. It's solemn. But it is full of hope. It is full of grace. God's grace goes before it. God's grace is in it and through it. And God's grace finishes it. It's a pattern of revelation. God reveals to us his word. Orthodoxy. Right worship Right living. There's realization that we are just not living in the order that God has set out for us. There's an opportunity in a moment of repentance where we can change our minds, where we can know that we're not stuck in this forever. And restoration, Guys, this is the gospel. If we can't get excited about this, if we can't be thankful for this, Lord, awaken our hearts. This, this is the hope that David had despite his despicable acts. This is the hope that David had. Now remember, I'm not telling you all this so that you will obsess over every thought, Motive or move? If you do, you won't live in the unforced rhythms of grace. Rather, you'll find yourself in a life of sin management. That's not why Christ died for you. So that you could try harder. You'll find yourself in a life of behavior modification. Well, it's kind of like Whole30, but with the Bible. And after probably decades of doing that, you'll realize that you've been performing for a God of your own creation. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who sent his only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not the God who enlivens us, who seals us in that restoration by his Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the pattern of those who are baptized. If you're baptized, this is the kind of life that you live. You know you're sinful. You know you're screwed up you know you've got more crap to deal with than you can handle. And that's why you repent and beg God for his help. Because at the end of the day, the only way to live the life that Christ preached about in the Sermon on the Mount, the only way to live the life that we see, that he, that he shows us forth, is, is by his empowering, is by his grace, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's the takeaway of all this? What, what's the takeaway for us as we're becoming St. Bartholomew? So first of all, you need to be open to correction from God. And God might correct you through someone else. And we're not going to adopt a, a habit of getting on our high horses and walk around. Well, I noticed the other day that you were, you know, that, that's not what I'm talking about. We have to be open to that revelation from God through his holy scriptures in moments of worship, and moments of quiet. But most of all, we have to be a people who can savor this good news. This benefits not just us, but all those who are near and far off. Everyone, all whom God will draw to himself, especially in this place. But more than that, as individuals and as a community, I want us to observe this rhythm, to be drawn into it. Do you see what I mean when I say it's part of the unforced rhythms of grace? It's something that God draws us into. You notice that the guys that followed Jesus, Jesus said, hey, you didn't follow me here because you saw the signs and you believed in me. You just want more food. Well, uh. Actually, he's right. It doesn't matter what your motive is. Get to Jesus. Feed on him. He's the bread of life and be sustained by him. So we want to observe this rhythm. Be drawn into it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace by it because the grace of God and God himself goes before us Pursues us and it restores us. Let's pray. God, we love you. Hmm. Forgive us for being so numb to how good you are to us. Hmm. We thank you for loving us and not and not totally removing your grace and your spirit from us. But thank you, Lord, that you call us into this rhythm. To hear your word, to realize the depth of our wrong, to repent, to change our minds, and then to receive restoration from you. So now, Lord, just a moment of quiet, we quiet our minds and we acknowledge our sin. We change our minds. And just in a moment of quiet, just receive the restoration of Of God. We beg of you, O God, breathe into us your divine life, that we may breathe out your praise, that our lives may be ordered by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.